Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast from Clare Church. If you'd like more information or the chance to donate online, please visit clarechurch.com. Good morning. We are in Mark chapter 11 today as we continue our series, Jedi Jesus, the Gospel and the Rebellion. And today we're going to talk a little bit more exactly about this rebellion that Jesus is starting. This, so if you know Star Wars, pretty much episode 4, 5, and 6 was all about the rebellion that was going on against the evil empire and the emperor and Darth Vader and all that. And so far, episodes 7 and 8, the two newest movies, have been about the resistance. And the resistance fighters are uh, working out kind of in a rebellion, uh, once again, against the uh, forces of evil. And in a similar way, in Jesus' time, uh, Jesus was seen as somewhat of a rebel rouser. That he was stirring the crowds up and stirring people up. Um, I don't know if he was doing that intentionally, but it was definitely something that the effect of his teaching and the things that he said and the things that he did, it stirred people up to the point where today we're reading about this story that they're waving palm branches and they're shouting and they're cheering him on as he walks into Jerusalem. Uh, If we... uh, seems like I have one more thing I was going to say about that. It'll come to me if it's important. All right. So, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. I'm not for sure on this. I'm not a geographical expert of exactly the way things were laid out in Jesus' time, but it makes it sound like this Mount of Olives place was an in-between place, in-between Bethphage. Bethany, which was on the way to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so it was some kind of uh, suburb, some kind of stopping point, some kind of resting point that they paused on their journey as they went on their way into Jerusalem. In fact, at the end of this section of verses in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, at the end of this uh triumphant entry into Jerusalem that says it was already late and he went out to Bethany with the disciples. So they kind of set up Bethany as a place where they're kind of living outside of Jerusalem. And uh, imagine, here's what I'm guessing. They're going there during the time of this Passover festival, the festival of unleavened bread. So there was probably a lot of people trying to go to Jerusalem be close to Jerusalem, trying to participate in the activities for the week in and around Jerusalem. So this was the spot that they found to uh, set up and to be. Uh, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell them the Lord needs it. We'll send it back here shortly. This is very similar to what we read last week about preparations for the Passover meal. The Jesus, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, "Hey, where do you want to eat the Passover? What, what should we do to get ready for it?" And the, Jesus kind of told them, "Well, if you go into town, you see this guy. He's carrying some water. Just follow him, and that master's hat. The master of that guy, go in, talk to him, and tell them that the Lord needs your upper room and make preparations there." 
Jesus is kind of predicting the future. Somehow he can see into what's going on and what's set up, and he's able to tell them. And he sends them as a pair into the city to find things just the way that Jesus said they would be. Uh, it's interesting that it's a cult that no one has ever ridden. Does anybody have a translation of the Bible that says donkey? Because I've always imagined it from the time I was a little kid that it was a donkey. This one in particular says colt, which no one has ever ridden. I don't know if anybody here has ever uh, broken a horse before, but horses take training in order for people to get them to ride them. Donkeys, similar kind of way. They take some kind of training to get used to being around people and being able to be ridden. The colt, which no one has ever ridden, is the animal that Jesus chooses to ride in on. I don't know exactly the meaning, the special meaning and purpose behind this, but in my own imagination, I'm thinking Jesus must have some kind of connection to the creation, you know, being uh, a part of the tr Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the Creator has a connection with the creation, that He's able to ride on this <coughs> cult that had never been ridden. Untie it, bring it here, and if anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Again, I think Jesus is establishing a pattern here of compare and contrast of what he's doing versus what people see and remember and recognize in the world around them of what happens. Usually people don't ride colts or donkeys in parades into town where people are shouting about uh, victory and, and set up your kingdom, the kingdom of David. That's what they were shouting, right? Usually these guys ride in all important, on a stallion, on a steed, a war horse, big, important, and powerful. Definitely an animal that had been ridden before, that was highly trained. Um, yet Jesus does none of that. In fact, in this particular instance where he says, the Lord needs it and I will bring it back to you shortly, is in contrast to if somebody comes in and conquers, they just take what they want. And they don't ever make any promises to bring it back or to give it back. I'm going to take it. I'm going to use it. Maybe I'll give it back. Maybe it doesn't. You might as well just count on it being gone. All right? So, well, uh, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Well, the two go on. It says they went, they found a colt outside of the street, tied in the doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, Why are, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered just as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. Now, I wonder if this wasn't a, a tip off to the people. Because somehow word had to get around that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Somehow word got around that crowds would be able to gather, that they would cut uh, branches from the fields that they would be there to have this parade and this welcome for Jesus into town. So the fact that they had this little interaction with somebody and saying the Lord needs it was obviously a tip off. Hey, Jesus is going to be here soon. Um, when they brought the cult to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many other people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields, and they went ahead, and those who followed shouted. What I've read about this putting cloaks and these branches on the road uh, for Jesus to walk upon, and putting the, the cloaks on the colt or on the donkey for Jesus to sit on, 
Uh, I read something about this was them saying and, and kind of pledging their loyalty to this person. That they were making a statement, a physical statement of that they believed in this person. That they, uh, that they were behind this person and believed in his cause, so to speak. Also, what I kind of maybe, as I think about this in our world, in our life, in our time today, where would we see this kind of thing? This could possibly be like uh, parades where maybe you're throwing confetti out to celebrate. Uh, or possibly this could be like rolling out the red carpet for somebody that's important, for somebody that's special. That um, the ground that you walk on, we worship the ground that we walk on, so to speak. That we wanted to make sure that you don't get contaminated by any of the dirt on the ground. We're going to cover it up so that you get to walk on this nice, uh, fancy carpet. Uh, from you. Uh, so it was something special to welcome a special person to say, we believe in you. We trust in you. We're glad that you're here. We're welcoming you. Uh, you're awesome, Jesus. Thumbs up, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so they shouted. They began shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The little devotion that I read to the kids for children's time said that Hosanna was a word that the people used when they were happy. They were just giving rejoice. Like, hooray, yay, he's here. Uh, if my Bible has a little note that says that this was a Hebrew expression meaning save. Meaning save which became an exclamation of praise. So, save, savior, uh, hero, the rescuer, Hosanna in the highest, save us, establish the kingdom of David. So the people, by shouting these things, are setting their expectations of what they think Jesus stands for. That they think Jesus is going to establish what they remember from the history books of what they've been told what the kingdom of David was like. And he's going to bring that rule and that reign back to Israel. And he's going to push out the political powers and change the status quo of the way things are and upset everything and put things back the way they're supposed to be. So the people are putting high expectations on what Jesus is going to accomplish, that he's going to save, and that he's going to restore the kingdom of David. And if you read through the Old Testament, uh, First and Second Samuel, uh, First and Second Kings, you you can read about the kingdom of David and how it was established back in those times. And, and see. Uh, they had missed out on that sense of having their own governing body over their territory for probably about 400 years. Okay, so this was a long time coming for them. Then in Jesus, they see that finally there's somebody who can do something to change our situation and get things back to the way we think they should be. So they're putting quite a lot of expectations, a huge burden of expectation onto Jesus and what he can accomplish. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. It's the first place he went. Goes straight through town, doesn't pass go, doesn't collect $200, straight to the temple. 
He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So somehow this parade took all day. I don't know how long of a journey it must have been to arrive on that colt through all the shouting people and all the people waving and throwing their cloaks down. It must have been slow. Parades don't move very fast. Somehow it took most of the day so that it was already late. But it also doesn't tell us how long he stood at the temple and looked around. How long did it take him to take everything in? When you think about it. I wonder what he felt when he walked into that temple. Here at this, leading up to this time of the Passover and this festival of unleavened bread, as people were coming in from all over, all different kinds of Jewish folks coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this holy time in their life. I wonder what he looked around and what he saw and what he felt. Well, as you read further along in Mark chapter 11, we see what Jesus sees. Because by the time we get to uh, verse 15, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, so he lays, he goes out to Bethany with the twelve, stays there overnight, and then the next morning he gets up. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus once again entered the temple area, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you, you have made it a den of robbers. So we get a picture of what it is that Jesus saw when he walked into the temple. That he saw a place that was meant for worship, for prayer, for growing in your relationship with God, for faith development, for spiritual growth. He saw something that God had intended for a wonderful purpose being used to take advantage of people. Because it wasn't just the fact that there was buying and selling and things going on, but he says specifically that you have turned it into a den of robbers, that people were taking advantage of people. And when you think about this, okay, big festival coming, lots of extra people coming to town. Hmm, we can make money off of this. So let's raise our prices some. Let's bump up the exchange rate some. So a dove that used to be $1, let's charge $5. Okay? So this is what people are doing and taking advantage of people who just wanted to come and worship God. So Jesus walks in and he sees what has happened to the temple, this place that was supposed to be holy, this place that was supposed to be focused on worshiping God, and he looks around, and he sees it all, and he leaves. And he leaves. Now, sometimes in my life, I get home and uh, start walking in the house to greet everybody, and I'll step on a toy. <laughs> you know, you just walk in, oh, it's a mess. You know, there's a mess. And I didn't expect to step on a toy. And so, how do you think I feel when I walk in to a mess? You ever walked into a mess before? How does it make you feel? So I wonder as Jesus walks into the temple and he sees, man, they've really made a mess of this place. How do you think he felt? Did he feel sad? He probably wasn't very happy. Did he feel sad? Did he feel 
pity. You know, some tellings of this story has Jesus mourning over Jerusalem. <coughs> that there was a sense of sadness, like his heart was breaking because of what he saw. Now, another way to read this, though, is that, honestly, I don't feel very sad when I step in on a toy. It usually hurts, and I get pretty angry pretty quick. Right? Uh, there's another way of talking about compassion, besides a heartbreaking feeling, was that he felt angry. That Jesus felt angry. Now, some of you may think that may be sinful to say, to feel anger. But let me tell you, anger is a feeling. We all feel it. There's no sin attached to one feeling or another. It's what you do with it what you do with it, that it could be sinful or not, right? So, but Jesus, I think he felt angry. In fact, I think he felt so angry, maybe you felt this way once or twice in your life. Have you ever felt so angry that you didn't know what you could be capable of? That if you just flew off the handle right then, right there in the midst of your anger, it was going to be really bad. And so Jesus takes a deep breath, he takes it all in, he lets that feeling lead with him out to bed, and he sleeps on it for a night. And he thinks about it, knowing what, how the rest of the week is going to go, because Jesus knows, everybody else doesn't know, but he knows. And he takes a deep breath, and he comes back the next day, and then he begins turning over the tables. And he begins teaching about what the kingdom of God is really supposed to look like. So he's saying it's not supposed to be about taking advantage of people. Like what's going on here in this temple. So he turns everything over. He turns it over. And as he begins teaching, he has lots of hard teachings. And guess who's listening? Besides all the crowds that were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, bring the kingdom of David back. And of course, Jesus said, well, I'm going to bring the kingdom of God. It may not be exactly what you remember. But they're all cheering him on. They're, the crowds are all there. They're hearing him. Guess who else is hearing? Besides the crowds, besides the disciples, also are the chief priests and the teachers of the law. The people who have power and influence to allow these things to take place in the temple, and in the community of faith. And as they hear it, this is verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law sensed a threat to their status quo, to their status, to their influence, to their power, to the way they expected things to work in Jesus. Partly because of what he taught, but also because the crowds were listening to him and he was stirring them up, right? That's the way the chief priests and the teachers of law saw this. And so what happens over these next few days of the week, which I want to talk about this today, we're kind of moving past the Palm Sunday thing into further brought into the story. I want to talk about some of this today because I know a lot of you, your lives won't allow you to be here on 
Wednesday, well, here at Ebenezer. <laughs> Wanna allow you to participate on Wednesday at 6.30 or Friday at 6.30 as we go through these portions of the story. So I wanna talk about some today. Now what happens is, so they began looking for a way to kill him. Jesus keeps teaching the truth. He, all along the way, Jesus is simply telling people the truth about God's kingdom, about what it truly looks like, about what it really looks like when God is alive and active and moving in the world. And so he's teaching, They've seen the healings. They've seen the good news. They've heard it preached and proclaimed. I mean, Jesus is offering sins to be forgiven. That people who were unclean could become clean. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law are like, no, you can't just go around forgiving people's sins, all right? We're the ones. We're the ones in charge of this religious process. We're the ones who decide who's in and who's out. And if they're unclean and dirty, they gotta go through our hoops. You can't just go forgiving their sins, Jesus, right? So they see this threat and they plot and they plan and eventually they get Judas to get in on their plan, someone who's close to be the inside man to betray Jesus over to them. And all along the way, what did they do over the course of that week? They begin turning the crowd. Because as you read through these next verses, the next place you see, so here the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Guess what the next thing is that the crowd shouts? Crucify him. Crucify him. Over those few days, the people of power and influence play the crowd to the point where they get them to go against Jesus. So they didn't just turn Judas. They were able to turn the whole crowd against Jesus. Even Jesus' disciples, the twelve, Jesus looks at them and he's like, all of you are going to turn your backs on me. Even they turn from him. And Peter raises his hand and he says, no, 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 no. They may all turn from you. But I, I will never, I will never deny no one. I will always have your back. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm sorry, but before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied knowing me three times. And Peter, trying to be loyal, true to his word, follows Jesus after he's arrested. And guess what happens? People recognize him and they say, you're with Jesus, aren't you? He says, oh, no, 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 I don't know him. And three times, Peter denies him. So everybody, it's kind of amazing what people in power can do. They will use your own faith and religion against you. It's kind of amazing what they can do. And I'm worried and afraid that the same thing happens today. 
settle for something less than Jesus. And we're going to think it's okay. And that it's good. Because it's cloaked in religion. Because it's cloaked in words that are familiar to us. It's cloaked in things that sound good to us. That seem to just make sense on the surface. And we're going to settle for less than Jesus. But Jesus was leading a rebellion. Jesus was establishing a kingdom. The kingdom of God. And what was most important in this kingdom was what? He was very open and honest about what are the greatest laws in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The first is to love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, he's quoting from the Old Testament, right? These were nothing new or just pulling them out of the blue. These were always there. Jesus was doing the same thing. He's saying, look, I think you're missing it. What's most important? Love God. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's leading this rebellion against the empire, against evil, against and turning over and changing the status quo. And he wants us to get on board. In fact, he's inviting and calling to you to get on board with this kingdom that says the most important thing is to love God and love one another. Even Jesus took this to a whole other level. It's not just be nice to your neighbor. <laughs> but he even said, if somebody hits you on the cheek, turn and let them hit the other one too. He says, love your enemies. He says, be nice to those who persecute you and seek to hurt you. That doesn't sound like the uh, fight back, get revenge, get even, get all you can type of teaching, right? This doesn't sound like the, well, you've got to stand up for yourself. Of teaching. Jesus came and he was an example of this love. And to a degree that some of us just, we're, we make up an excuse for ourselves well, I'm not Jesus, so I don't have to live like that. I can hate my enemies, I can seek after revenge. Only Jesus can do those things. But no, how did Jesus teach his disciples? What did he do? He washed their feet. He said, I came to serve, not to be served. And they tried to argue with him. No, 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 you're too great. You're too important. You can't get down on your knees in the dirt and wipe the dirt off my feet. I should be doing that for you. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. This is what love is all about. It's about how you serve one another. It's about selflessness and denying yourself to serve Love one another. In fact, Jesus gets to the point where he's hanging on the cross. And the crowd has shouted, crucify him, crucify him. People have spit at him, hurled insults at him, and cheered on this spectacle 
and he's on the cross looking out. And what does he say? What is his prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How great a love is that for your life? That yes, I've fallen short. Yes, I don't love my wife and my kids as much as I possibly could. That yes, we fall short. But still, Jesus says, I give my life for you. I forgive you. And so what this becomes about and the invitation for our lives is, is to make love the most important thing. That before you die, the thing that you've committed yourself to, above all other things, is that I am going to love the best that I possibly can. Whereas all the world around us wants us to say, no, it's about making money. It's about success. It's about influence and power and all those other things. No, the kingdom of God is about love. The kingdom of God is about love. That I, I want you to make this decision for yourself. Make that commitment. Today, don't put it off anymore. That before I die, I am going to love the best that I possibly can. From this moment on, I am going to commit my life to love the best that I possibly can. Yes, we're going to fall short from day to day. But over time, shouldn't we be getting better at it? Over time, Shouldn't there be more and more grace and love and forgiveness in our hearts towards others? Over time. Right? And here's the thing. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, Pilate, Herod, the people in power, they think they won. They think they're winning today. Him on the cross, they put him in the tomb, they seal it up with a rock, and they think, we took care of that, we put that rebel down, it's over. But what happens? What happens? That wasn't the end, was it? Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the stone was rolled away. Come next week, you can hear the rest of that story, right? Easter morning. I gotta leave, I gotta save something for next week. Today is Jesus inviting you into this rebellion that says, I will love the best that I possibly can. And see, if we're not careful, <laughs> we can get played. We can get played and convinced and sucked in to not loving and to fighting and being divided against each other, right? But Jesus says, 
kingdom of God has two great commandments. Love God, love one another. Commit your life to following Jesus. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for the teaching of your scripture today. It's definitely a difficult one to hear. Because it's easy to it's easy to cry out, Lord, I need a savior to fix my life and my situation. It's much harder to humble myself and let you change me. God, we pray for the Spirit of Christ to be upon each one of us. Renew our hearts. Renew our minds. Plant your love deeply inside of us. Make it our top priority to love the best that we possibly can. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of bullying, even in the face of enemies, even in the face of people who would insult or try to tear us down, help us to love the best that we possibly can. We commit our lives to you. Amen. We'll close with a song today.